Hi, I'm Grant Speed, and this is the Interim Leader Podcast, brought to you by Orgis Interim, the UK's largest provider of interim management services. For the third episode of our Interim Leader series, I'm joined by Bambos Iraklis, the head of our sports media and gaming practice, to discuss the growth of these industries. Bambos, welcome to the show. Thanks, Grant. So, look, why don't we start by explaining why we've actually grouped these three industries into one single practice, instead of them separating them out? Two reasons, really. Uh, firstly, it's been driven by the convergence of the three areas of, of sports, gaming and media uh, over recent years. And secondly, and looking at it from a recruitment perspective, it's that flow and movement of individuals between the three areas that's become more and more common in the senior hires that we look after. So what, what's actually been behind the convergence then? In the main, it's, it's been driven by the increased competition for people's spare time and disposable income. Uh, so the landscape becomes or has become a lot more competitive. And we're now looking at a all-encompassing entertainment industry and a blurring of the lines between the three areas that used to be quite distinct. If you then add the technology aspect to the equation, and by that I mean the ability to see whatever we want, whenever we want, and wherever we want on a range of different devices, you now have different industries all fighting for the same thing, and that's your eyes and your ears. So what this means as a recruiter, uh, and I guess as a provider of senior interims, is that we're now being asked by clients to identify individuals who either have a breadth of experience across all three areas, or a strong track record in an area of the entertainment industry that we're looking to move into. Can you sort of put some bring some life to this and give us a couple of examples of how you're actually seeing the change? Yeah, and. Uh, Look, look, I guess you probably won't thank me for saying it, but people I would like, imagine not. <laughs> but people like you and I are old enough to remember when satellite and subscription TV and the introduction of Sky into our living rooms was uh, was a huge, massive change. Uh, all of a sudden, you had a range of channels to choose from, as well as your standard four or five terrestrial TV options. Albeit back at the very start, the quality of that content on offer was pretty much restricted to the occasional movie an episode of The Simpsons um, and your Premier League football. But in the last few years, and I think quite quickly, that status quo has been pretty much taken apart. And um, you know, the likes of your BBCs, ITVs, Skies, they're all up against streaming services, telecoms giants and Silicon Valley tech companies. And they've all got much larger budgets at their disposal, and that allows them to acquire, provide, and even now originally produce the biggest and the best content out there. And that's the same, I guess, for the sports and media industries as well? Yeah, de uh, definitely. Uh, you've got streaming services like Amazon Prime competing against the likes of Sky and BBC, as well as competing against the likes of social networks like Facebook and Twitter. They're all looking to secure the rights packages for sports like football, tennis and boxing. And then you've got streaming services which are now being launched and dedicated to individual sports like DAZN for boxing, Twitch TV for esports or even Golf TV, which is a result of Discovery spending a lot of money to acquire those rights from the US PGA Tour. And then if you take it one step further, you've also got the impact that all of this has on sport itself. And what I mean by that is how to make individual sports more entertaining, more accessible and more viewer friendly to an audience whose attention span is getting shorter and that's increasingly getting used to not having to pay for anything when they do actually sit down to, to watch it. So you've got the introduction of shorter formats of traditional sports coming through, like tennis. And then you have instances like uh, the NBA in the US providing access to 
the last quarter of a basketball match for the reduced price of uh, 79 cents. That's really interesting, actually, uh, uh, to see that fr- from that model, is there less money coming into sport? Uh, I don't know about, about less money. I think people are looking to pay for it in different ways. Um, I think I think the money uh, the money is there. I think being, I think the money is probably coming from a certain part of the audience. So if you look at Sky's subscription base in the main, it's probably and again you're not going to you're, you're not going to thank me for saying this, but for people like you and I, yeah. people over a certain age who are used to paying paying for for sport. But when our kids get older, um, yeah. they won't be used to uh, they won't be paying for sport at all. It's about streaming it live or actually getting. Highlights of um, of those uh, matches being sent to them um, to their mobile devices, and I guess you know if we build on that, it goes without saying that it's not just what we're watching, but it's also what we listen to and how we listen to it, right? Yeah, but, but exactly. You've got radio stations, you've got podcast companies, um, you've got Amazon offering you access to audio books, and you've got streaming services like Spotify. They're all competing for the attention of your ears. Yeah, and um, that can be during your commute on your way to work or when you're at home whilst your eyes are occupied either by the TV screen watching a football match uh, where you might have a bet on, on the game by the way or playing Fortnite online with a group of friends which um, I'm sure you do all the time. Well. <laughs> Less so actually. <laughs> um, and it, you know, in a lifetime or in a generation it's come so far. I, I actually am maybe a little bit older because I remember the launch of Channel 4. Um and I also remember that waiting for the next TV program. You'd wait a week, or you'd wait a long period of time for a, you know, a film to come onto VHS. Then, you know, I remember Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back. It was three years before they came on VHS, and then, you know, maybe four or five before they became on yeah. onto actual terrestrial television. Yeah, and don't worry about me. I also remember the launch of Channel Four. Good. So, yeah. Good. Um, what specifically, in from a media perspective, what what's been the biggest trend you've seen over the last twelve months? Uh, if I look back at, at two thousand and ten, I, I mean, I can probably sum it up in one word, and that's consolidation. Um, so you've got Netflix, you have Amazon, you have Apple. Their reach, their their resources now means that traditional media companies and studios are having to play catch up. Or in some cases, having to to pivot or invest quite heavily in order to match their scale and scope of of offering. So if I look at the biggest deal globally and and, and the one which got probably the most media coverage uh, last year, and that was Disney's acquisition of 21st Century Fox, that's going to provide Disney with the efficiencies of scale, which they hope will allow them to bring together enough quality content to launch their own direct-to-consumer offering, which is going to be a viable competitor to Netflix and, and Amazon Prime. And then the flip side to that is what happens uh, to Fox or what's left of, of Fox. So they've retained Fox News, they've retained Fox Sports. Uh, so it looks like they're moving more towards uh, a platform where they focus on live and event TV. And that in turn complements Murdoch's uh, other main assets of newspapers and radio stations. So I think the upshot of, of all of that is that we're going to see more streaming services being launched or announced over the next 12 months. That's going to include the likes of Disney Plus and, and Warner Media. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how all of that plays out because as consumers, I think we're getting close to subscription fatigue. So what does that mean? 
Does that mean that we're going to see more bundles of subscriptions being grouped together and made available to us for a discounted price? Are we going to see more micro payments coming in, similar to what I mentioned earlier around, around the MBA? Are we going to see more skinny subscriptions that limit the amount of content that we uh, can acquire, but at a discounted price? Do you think that will happen though? I mean, what's the likelihood? I mean, I pay a lot of subscriptions, whether it's the Sky TV monthly subscription, it's Netflix, it's Amazon Prime. You know, in an ideal world, I'd access them all on one platform. Yeah, um, I think I think we're close to it. Um, how close, I don't know. Will it happen in the next 12 months? Probably not. But if anything like me, I'm coming close to forgetting how many subscriptions I actually had. Yeah. Um, but, and, but Netflix and Sky, are, 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 you can now access Netflix yeah, via Sky? Yeah, right? and I, yeah absolutely. And I, I think that's the start of it. And actually in the States, they're trialing something with, I think, uh, Netflix, Audible, and it may be Spotify, um, where they're being uh, offered to students at a discounted, discounted price. So, um, well, with effect being that once they leave university or college, wherever it may be, they yeah, keep the subscriptions. Okay, the value goes up. Um, but they've got the uh, they've got the audience already, so I don't think we're we're too far away. Um, again, I think uh, seeing how that develops, does that mean we're going to have newspapers come together? You know, newspaper figures um, are on a decline. We all know about what the you know digital transformation has done to that. Will we be seeing different types of new newspapers grouped together? You pay monthly uh, subscription to download different articles from different newspapers. Interesting. Just going back, you mentioned um, there's been a high level of M&A activity. And, mm. and I guess in the UK, the comparison would be Comcast's acquisition of Sky. Yeah. What impact is that going to have on the sector? Um, it, it depends on, on who you speak to. You've got a lot of investors who are quite sceptical about what these mergers uh, are actually going to allow the media and the telecoms giants um, uh, to do and whether it's going to give them the, the scale and scope to actually catch up uh, with Netflix or, or, or Amazon. Um, if you look at Comcast's acquisition of Sky uh, itself, you know, the deal absolutely makes sense. You know, uh, Comcast, US market, it's already quite saturated. So Sky gives them an immediate footprint across Europe and also allows them to expand further. Uh, the flip side is, however, what that means to people like you and I who, who are Sky's customers. Um, Sky's always been very innovative. I think it's been great with technology. I don't know if you have Sky Q. I do. I think it's fantastic. Um, but having made such a big initial outlay uh, for Sky, it remains to be seen whether Com Comcast are actually going to still invest the money to keep Sky at the forefront of, of that technology. So if that may have an impact on the, on the end consumer. And then there's also the knock-on effect that the M&A activity has for people actually work in the industry and the uncertainty that's going to have around uh, jobs, you know, um, and you know, large mergers and acquisitions always have this knock-on effect. So, look, there will be new opportunities being created, I'm sure, when the legacy companies uh, come together and, and the new co's um, uh, arise. I think from an interim perspective, um, I think we're going to see quite a lot of uh, assignments coming through which are focused on integration itself of the legacy companies, uh, particularly around some of the corporate functions like HR, legal and IT. Um, and I think a deal uh, the size of something like uh, Comcast and Sky is going to create a lot of opportunities for everyone involved. You're going to have the transfer of knowledge between the two companies, the transfer of resources. You know, you might have people from Sky going 
across the Atlantic to work in the US with Comcast and the technology piece um, that we've mentioned for both businesses as well. So you know, Sky's broadband service, for example, can tap into Comcast Telecom's expertise. That's interesting. Look, on that, on that theme, do you see any more mergers or acquisitions ahead in the next 12 months? Uh, I do. Um, I don't think... Uh, I don't think that's going to stop completely. I do. I do think, however, uh, the pace and the scale of those mergers will probably slow down. Um, you know, there's talk out there in the marketplace at at, at the moment of um, Apple, um, for example, um, buying buying Sony Pictures. So I think I think we will still see the big deals. I don't think we'll see as many um, in 2019. Is Apple lagging behind in content creation? Uh, I think. Uh, if you look across the media landscape now, whereas maybe five, six years ago, um, Apple was always the first thing that people would mention, mm. um, they're starting to look a bit slow and ponderous if you compare them to the likes of Netflix and, and, and Amazon. Mm. Uh, however, they've made um, some great senior hires um, uh, who I'm sure have, have, have big ideas and big plans for the future. I think it's about how they merge music and film and TV and what their original content is going to look like. Um, and I think at some point in 2019, we'll have a, a lot clearer idea of what, what that's going to be. Okay. Um, I'm a little bit worried about our traditional linear TV channels. Okay. So I'm, you know, I, I, I'm worried that the television channels that I grew up with that we've talked about already aren't going to be here in 10 years time. Is that, is that a, a real worry? Um, Potentially, uh, I think I think you've got a lot of people who are writing off the BBC, NITV, um, and Channel Four very quickly. I think if you I think if you look at uh, uh, their audience figures on the decline, um, I think if you look at look at the advertising spend, it will be very easy for me to uh, to sit here and agree um, uh, with uh, with all of that. But I'm going to be a bit or slightly controversial. Uh, I'm going to say that the you know, our traditional stations have had a, a great 12 months. I think there's been huge successes there. I think some of it's been led by uh, the big uh, live event TV, like like World Cup and um, and the Royal Wedding. But also I think the content that ITV and Channel 4 and, and the BBC are producing is probably better now than it ever has been. I think they've had to raise their game because of the amount of money that Netflix and Amazon are pumping into their own content. I think the commissioning has got better as a result, and I think um, the independent production houses that serve that UK market have upped their game as well. So if you look at Bodyguard, Bodyguard was a was a massive success. I think it's been the most successful BBC program ever. The one actually. with Kevin Costner. <laughs> no, not that one, Grant. <laughs> the one that we were all tuning in on on Sunday evening to watch. Okay, sorry, yeah, no, 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 I didn't. Just teasing. <laughs> Um, but that was that was I think that was that signalled a little bit of a return to appointment and scheduled TV. You know, people were tuning in at nine pm on a Sunday evening to watch body, to watch Bodyguard or the Bodyguard. Yeah, right? yeah, depending on what. what, what you say. But um, it was it was a huge success. Luther has been has been great as well. Killing Eve, a, a, another example, and interesting as well because Killing Eve actually was released on a week by week basis. But you could also look at it. Uh, you could also view it all in one go via iPlayer as well. So I think that's an example of how the BBC have changed their stance and their position on the back of the uh, success of things like Netflix. 
And do you think, I mean, these are the channels, right, that are bringing those water cooler moments, aren't they? Yeah. These are the ones where I I remember when it was three or four channels, you'd sit around and everybody the next day would have watched exactly the same thing and we'd all talk about it. And I feel probably over the last 10 years that we've moved away from that. And I think that's because of multi-channel. Yeah. Do you think these big channels that are being, you know, these big programs, sorry, being delivered by these linear terrestrial we're calling them linear terrestrial channels but Mm -hmm. bbc itv and so on Mm -hmm. are bringing that back yeah i do i do i mean um look i I don't think we're ever going to get to the uh back to the point of you you mentioned you know sitting down as a family and 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 watching a tv program for me it was only fools and horses yeah and i would i would go in the next day and we'd all all be talking about dill boy you know falling through the bar and and it will be you know great tv and, and great moments that you'll watch as a family Will we get back to the point where 25 million people are tuning into an episode of EastEnders? I don't think so. But um, I do think there's there's a role for the linear channels to play. I think it's about how their content uh, complements the content of Netflix, Amazon and the other streaming services. And also uh, the ability that, that the likes of iPlayer, you know, you can move and mess around with the appointment. So Love Island, huge success for, for ITV. People would watch it on that evening, but they wouldn't necessarily all watch it at the same time. They might watch it on the way back from a night out um, via the ITV player or watch it in, in, in the morning on the way into work. But they would have watched it over the course of that 12, 18 hour period and gives them you know, the opportunity to speak about it with their friends when they're at work. Yeah, interesting. And um, look, you, you mentioned the World Cup when we, when we started talking about this. And, that, and, and clearly we, we had quite a run and that, that would have had an impact on our terrestrial channels. But... You know, how has that media landscape changed in the way that we go on and, and view our sport now? I think if you look at the last two or three years, uh, the biggest change that, that we've seen or how we've seen it play out um, is the number of people who are actually willing to pay a monthly subscription for sports channels. Uh, and I think that's that's for a few reasons. There, there's a lot more options available to, to viewers. I think um, it costs a lot more to subscribe to these channels now, particularly if you're paying for other subscriptions that, that we've already mentioned. Uh, and I think it's a lot harder to engage younger audiences um, now than uh, than ever before. I mean, you know, um, the millennials, um, they're wired in a different way. You know, they're wired to digest bite-sized chunks of entertainment. And they're also part of a growing section of the market who, quite frankly, they don't see the point of paying for something that they can get or, or, or that they can find available to stream for free somewhere else. Is that a big challenge that the industry is facing? Because th- there are loads of places, you know, people are tweeting goals and so on. You can just look at them there. I mean, how do you monetize that? I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a massive concern for, for all involved. And I think it's the reason why you will probably won't see um, the likes of a Premier League selling the rights to, um, to the matches for you know, the scale of money that we've seen in recent years, um, you know, it will go down. So what, what's going to happen going forward, you know, around streaming? Uh, I think you're going to see a few things happen. I think you're going to see uh, the launch of more streaming services dedicated to individual sports. Uh, I think you're going to see the, the creation and rise in the popularity of, of shorter formats of traditional sports. You know, we've, we, we've seen it recently with um, with tennis um and something um, called uh, tiebreak ten, when actually you're not paying a, a you're not playing a five set match, 
you're getting the uh, the best players in, in in the world to play um 20 minute matches against one another um tie break format but it's a first to 10 um it's one evening's worth worth of sport but the winner walks out with um you know cash which would have taken them a week to uh, to earn traditionally. So sort of like the 2020 in yeah. cricket. Yeah, yeah, and actually cricket were, were quite ahead of the curve in, 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 in doing that. But I think you'll, you, you've seen it in tennis. I think um, you're beginning to see it again in, uh, with basketball out in the States with the three-on-three format. Will it extend to, fo- uh, to football? Who knows? You know, you might see the rising popularity of five-a-side mm. um, against the 11-a-side uh, option. Um, I also think you're going to see more of a, the kind of micro- payments and bundled options that uh, we've spoken about already um, following that NBA last quarter format. And I think you're going to see more one-off big ticket pay-per-view sporting events. Um, you know, Floyd Mayweather against um, uh, uh, Conor McGregor was huge. Um, yeah. Phil Mickelson recently against Tiger Woods in, in a one-off um, golf match. Uh, massive as well. I think in part that's going to be driven by uh, viewing habits and um, you know and, and people getting excited about these one-off events, but also in part I think it's going to be uh, driven by the uh, the gaming and the gambling market, uh, particularly US side, um, where sports betting is now legal. You know these events are uh, prime for that kind of uh, activity. Mm. And uh, the other area that you, I, I think you're going to see um, that's going to going to really serve all of this is esports, um, which is already really big. But we'll just keep on getting bigger over the next few years. Uh, I'm going to shamelessly plug it for you, seeing as you didn't, but you wrote an excellent article about esports recently. Why has this industry become such a big thing? And, and, and why, why do you see it growing so significantly over the next few years? Yeah, I, I look at esports and I think it's, it's probably the best and, and most exciting example of this convergence of sports media and gaming that, that we've been talking about throughout. Look, it's got all the ingredients. It, it's got a young, engaged and growing um, audience population which is tech savvy and already used to accessing content in a number of different ways it's shorter it's faster paced so it's ideal for that time precious viewer that we've mentioned and look if you look at the figures it's already the second largest spectator sport in the world it, it, it brings in massive audiences in Asia and America it's, it's selling out arenas of um, 100,000 uh, plus and and that's starting to catch on in um, in Europe and, and the UK as as well. So we're starting to see broadcasters over here televise events. I think Sky televised the um, E FIFA World Cup uh, back in the back in the summer, and that's only going to drive audience um, figures up upwards and and uh, attention uh, up as well. I think if you then add the fact that traditional sports franchises, uh, the music industry, celebrities. They're all beginning to jump on the bandwagon and invest and launch into esports teams. I think that we're very, very close to a, a major tipping point for esports in general. Um, and particularly if you look at the video game sector over the last 12 months, um, it's bigger than the combined revenue of both video, home entertainment and music for the first time ever. I think something in the region of £3.5 billion. Pounds. I mean, it's, it's huge. Wow. I mean, it's really interesting, right? The way that technology has come on, so that you, you know, we're now watching people play these games. Yes. Could could you see an E Chelsea and an E Man United league? I mean, that they, they might exist. Um, I I think we're a few months away from it, actually. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you have the twenty Premier League clubs um, have I think two uh, FIFA players each, um, and they will have 
a tournament or a league of some sort, which will probably play in the off-season. Um, so particularly this season where you don't have a Euros or a World Cup. Again, it's it's a way of keeping people engaged while still tapping into, into the new audience. Uh, Formula One are doing it quite successfully. Um, and actually, I think there's an opportunity for, for the winner of the eSports Formula One competition to actually try their hand at being you know, fully-fledged Formula One driver. Wow. So, okay. uh, look, you, you have uh, eSports players. I think um, uh, the guy who won the FIFA eWorld Cup last year were an 18-year-old who was stacking shelves in, in, in a remote village in Italy. Um, you know, is now earning £500,000 a year wow. assigned to a professional esports team. So is there hope that a mid-40s, middle-aged man <laughs> could perhaps play rugby for England one day <laughs> in uh, a different format? Maybe not Maybe not rugby, Grant, but I, I don't know if Mario Kart was ever to, <laughs> <laughs> to have any competition, then you and I both have a chance. Okay, look, seriously though, why, why is it growing so much, you know? Uh, I think, it, you know, similar to other parts of, of, of the entertainment sector, it's largely being driven by that transition from physical distribution to digital dis- distribution, um, as well as the growth of games apps on, on smart devices, whether that be, you know, your, your iPad or your, or your mobile phone. And then you've got the combination of free content as well as... Um, uh, in-game monetization that all maintains and expands the interest of the game and removes that cap on spending uh, for the gamers who are really engaged in that in that experience so so it's not a one-off i'm buying a game it's i'm buying a game and then i'm continuing to buy things within the game right yeah 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 and okay. for, Fortnite over the last 12 months being that that big high profile um example of that you know i i don't know the figure offhand but i imagine what Fortnite make um every month is is going into the millions and millions of pounds and actually it's costing the creators of Fortnite very little if, if anything at all okay to put that content content out there but the more that um you know the audience more more that the gamers get get involved in the game the more likely they are to spend money whereas if you go and watch a film at the cinema it's a one-off payment do any do any people go and watch films at the cinema anymore uh, you know uh, but it's you know it, it's just a one-off payment right so yeah okay so, so I'm interested by you know actually the 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 quality of games now. I'm not a big gamer, but they're getting have becoming much more realistic. Mm. You know, it's almost like a TV program sometimes, or a video. You're in a film. Yeah, and I think I think there was a big shift a few years ago when people started started. I mean, Grand Theft Auto for me was was. Part of the beginning of that. Um, yeah. I'm not. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm. I'm, I'm a gamer as such. But uh, you know, you, uh, you look at what Grand Theft Auto Auto did, um, and and the graphics were were becoming a, a lot more lifelike, and they were combining that with music. I think that was you know that, that was the beginning of it all. Um, and now you started to see it shift the other way. So I think you've got, and you will have TV programs and films looking a lot more like games. Um, the reason being they want to again capture capture that audience and. The most recent example of that was Black Mirror um, on Netflix and Bandersnatch, where you know the audience were uh, given the opportunity to be interactive and, and pick the direction of that program and that film and how it all, all ended. So I think you'll, you'll see a lot more of that. I think once um, uh, VR and AR start becoming a lot more common in terms of how you view uh, uh, TV programs and films, 
you know, it's that interactive uh, interactive element. You, you're going to be part of it. It's almost as if you're playing a game, but you'll be part of part of a film. And that again will extend into into sport. Um, so I don't think we're too far off from putting on our headset to watch, you know, the Manchester derby and being in the dugout next to Pep Guardiola, where where he's bouncing up and down in the touchline, and you're sitting next to Aguero or whoever it may be as part of that that team. Wow. I mean, that would be fascinating, right? It would be brilliant, yeah. Yeah, especially if you could listen in to what they were talking about. <laughs> going back to football, what's your prediction going forward for the next 12 months in terms of you know sport, or more specifically the business of sport? Yeah, again, yeah. look, it's, it's centred around those common themes which we've been talking about, about uh, throughout. You, you're going to see different sports create more platforms and opportunities um, to allow the consumer to access uh, that coverage directly. Um, you're going to see them create a lot more in-depth content for those people who want to binge on their favourite sport. Um, but then you're going to have the other end of extreme where it's going to be putting out bite-sized chunks of um, highlights and, and information which um, allows those individuals who have a passing interest in, in football, for example, uh, but don't want to see a whole match uh, to access that, that type of content as well. It, it's going to be tricky. It's going to be difficult to serve both parts of the audience, um, but that's what I think is going to need to happen. Um, and we're probably going to see um, more people potentially from uh, you know, the, the, the kind of tech um, and media industries moving across into sport in order to, to make that happen. Uh, and then if I look at our clients and what they've been asking from us uh, most recently um, in terms of interim execs and specific expertise, I think, I think rights holders They've got a lot more that they could potentially do around the areas of e-commerce and customer experience, um, and also in terms of um, fan engagement and you know how they can best use social media channels, um, you know the likes of Instagram um, and whatever comes after Instagram in order to to make that happen. And you've seen a little bit of a shift actually um, recently uh, of that power um, and ability to. To reach that end, end audience from the rights holders and the football clubs or, or you know, rugby clubs or whatever it may be to the players themselves. You know, players I think have become a lot more savvy in using Instagram and things like the Players Tribune uh, to uh, to engage with their fan base directly, and that also gives them the ability or has allowed them to go a bit off script and be quite candid in issues which extend beyond sport. And I think that's something that um, you know the, the sports themselves have to look at. Okay. Look, I think it's really safe to say that things have changed pretty rapidly and we're going to see something really interesting over the next 12 months. Bambos, thanks so much um, for talking today. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Warren. And to all of you that have joined us, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.